It's good to see you here today. If you're visiting with us, you need to know we're in almost the middle of a seven-part series uh, on John's first letter uh, that I've entitled Assurance and Encouragement in an Uncertain Age. And today we turn to the second chapter, uh, the first six verses. And I'll read these words for us. I hope you'll follow along in your Bible or your bulletin insert. This is where John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Perhaps you heard about the man who was visiting a church one Sunday. He he saw a man come out and introduce his friend to the pastor. He said, Pastor, you know, this is Fred. He's been a member here a long time. And the pastor took hold of Fred's hand and pulled him closer to him and said, said, Fred, you need to be in the army of the kingdom. And Fred said, I am in the army of the kingdom. And the pastor said, well, why is it I only see you at Easter and at Christmas? Fred moved a little closer and said, because I'm in the secret service. (laughs) Now, though he doesn't use those exact words... John, in this text, among other things, is making sure that we understand there's no such thing as the secret service in the kingdom of God. In fact, in verse 6, John says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. But that's not where John begins with this passage. Instead, he begins with these very loving and pastoral words, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it could be that when certain people read that wonderful assurance of pardon that John gave us in last week's text, you know, that verse that says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It could be that when some people read that assurance of pardon, they took that as a license to sin. Hey, 
if God's going to be faithful and just to forgive me, then I can just go out and do whatever I want to do. You know, let the, let the party begin. Well, in Romans 6, Paul deals with this same kind of issue. That's why I had us read that particular passage for the first reading. Because in his fifth chapter, Paul had said, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And as he often does in Romans, since he didn't plant that church or know very many people in it, Paul anticipates how his words might be misunderstood. And so at the beginning of Romans 6, that's why Paul asks, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And in a very nice way, Paul sort of says, How dumb is that? You know, he says, By no means. You know, that's not what it's all about. And Paul ends that chapter with these words, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You see, Paul's whole argument through there is that we're slaves of sin, but once the power of the Holy Spirit grabs hold of us and we're converted by God, by His power, and shown our need for His saving grace, then we're no longer slaves of sin. We're still going to sin, but we're no longer slaves of sin. And instead, we become slaves or servants of God. And so Paul ends that chapter by saying, now that you've been set free from, from sin and become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. John's making much the same point here in our passage. We have to remember that justification and sanctification, you know, justification, that one-time act where God declares us righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because of, of what Jesus has done on our behalf, justification and sanctification, that thereby, day by day, growing more and more to be like Jesus Christ, those go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. In fact, uh, the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 77, makes it clear, among other things, that justification and sanctification are inseparably joined. And John is going to talk about sanctification in this passage, but in order to do so, he talks about what Jesus brings to you and me as Christian people. And the first thing he mentions here is the advocacy of Jesus Christ on our behalf. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now there are about 200 names or titles for Jesus in all of Scripture. 200 different ones. You know, we can come up with a lot of those on our own, but I would be hard-pressed to come up with 200, and I would guess that you would be too. But we know the easy ones, you know, Son of Man, Son of God, Lord, Christ, Master, Teacher. Then we can get back in the Old Testament and think about the Rose of Sharon or the Lily of the Valley, those sorts of titles 
But John gives us a title in Scripture for Jesus that he's the only one who uses this word. He uses it in his gospel to talk about the Holy Spirit. And then he uses it here in this letter to talk about Jesus Christ. And that word is paraclete. In the Greek, which is usually translated as helper or comforter or intercessor or advocate, as our ESV translation has it. As one scholar put it, advocate is a good translation here because it highlights the legal sense of the word. You know, if you're in a courtroom being charged with serious crimes, you want the best help you can get. You not only want a friend who will go there with you, but you want someone who can plead to the judge on your behalf. I know our society doesn't think too much of attorneys anymore, nor preachers for that matter. But Abraham Lincoln was a much respected attorney in his day and time. He was not adored by everyone, but he had a great legal reputation and his honesty was above reproach. And one of his most famous cases had to do with an acquaintance of his, a Mr. Armstrong, who was being charged with murder. And a witness had testified on the stand that by the light of the moon, he saw this Mr. Armstrong participate in this murder. And in the course of his cross-examination, Abraham Lincoln pulls out a farmer's almanac and begins to read about the night in question. And it was too dark. There was no moon that night. Too dark for this witness to have seen anything. And with a sincere and emotional appeal, he won an acquittal for his friend. You know, that's the kind of person you want as your advocate. That's the kind of person you want standing beside of you. And the point that John is making is that we have this kind of help and so much more in the person of Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is our advocate. And you see, the helpfulness of Jesus as our advocate is very specific because He's lived a human life just like you and I live. He's been on this earth. He knows what it's like. He understands temptation. He is also Christ, who as God's anointed is uniquely acceptable to God. And He's righteous, which means He's the only one who can be in the presence of a totally holy and pure God on our behalf. Do you see what John is saying? He's saying Jesus is the greatest defense attorney ever. And he works for free. I hadn't known too many attorneys like that, but I have known some. And they're in this church. And not only does he work for free, but he never goes on vacation. As the writer of Hebrews puts it in his seventh chapter, he's able for all time to save those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
But we also need to see here that this everlasting and ever-living intercession and advocacy of the Lord Jesus is made possible only in and through His sacrificial death on the cross. There is no intercession without first having made a propitiation. And this is what John talks about in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you see what John is doing here in the text? He's quietly moving us from the courtroom where Jesus was the advocate. Now he's moved us over to the temple where Jesus is the perfect once and for all sacrifice. Being our advocate who speaks in our favor in the presence of God even despite our sins. He's moving from that to Jesus being the atoning sacrifice for those same sins. This word translated as propitiation is a somewhat technical term and we're not going to go there. But as one scholar put it, it means that on the cross, Jesus turned away God's righteous anger, satisfied the demands of His justice, and averted our punishment in a substitutionary manner. But you see, at the same time, it also carries the notion of, of wiping away our sins. As John the Baptist said, there goes the Lamb of God. Who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, our sins are covered over, so our sins are dealt with, and at the same time, God's righteous anger is dealt with. The NIV tries to catch both of these emphases by translating this word as atoning sacrifice instead of propitiation like the ESV in our translation or expiation if you like the ORSV. And that's the phrase I typically use, atoning sacrifice, when I use this assurance of pardon uh, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. But the main point here is that since God is light, as we talked about in a previous sermon, meaning, among other things, that He's totally pure, it's because God is who He is that we all need a propitiation for our sins. We need God's wrath turned away from us through a perfect offering, which is what Jesus does on the cross for you and for me. And He's the only one who can do that. And Jesus, John says, is the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world. I don't want you to misunderstand that verse. John is not preaching universalism there. He's not saying that everybody's going to be saved. And we know that not only because of his nuance here in the text but because of Jesus' teaching. You know, the Reformation principle, you interpret Scripture with Scripture. We know that Jesus teaches about judgment quite often. We know especially 
when he teaches about the great judgment in Matthew 25. He makes it very clear that when he comes in glory, he will separate the nations one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He speaks very clearly there of some who will go away into eternal punishment and others, the righteous, who will have eternal life. Why are they righteous? Not because of anything they've done, but because they stand in and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, through Him we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Now, if you've read Matthew 25 lately about that great judgment, you know that's where Jesus says, If you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. In other words, Jesus is talking about how we live day in and day out. Do we notice people in need? Do we take the time to visit or reach out? Do we offer hospitality? Do we make a difference in the lives of others? This is the type of thing that Jesus did all of the time. And He's telling us that He's called us to live that same kind of life. And this is what John begins to talk about in verses 3 through 6. The example of Jesus and how we are to follow it. We can see it most clearly in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Now, there are all sorts of biblical descriptions when we talk about being a Christian. We can talk about it in terms of being in Christ, as the Apostle Paul does so often in his letters, or knowing God, or walking in the light, as John talked about it in last week's text. But invariably, if it's an authentic claim, as someone put it, it will show itself in a new life of obeying God, imitating Christ, and loving our brothers and sisters. Now you may be thinking, why spend time talking about obedience if obedience doesn't save us? I mean, we don't preach works righteousness around here. So why is it important? Well, one reason it's important, according to John in this text, is that our assurance of faith comes from an obedient life. Did you pick up on that? It's in verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know Him. You hear what John's saying there? By this, we know that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ if we keep His commandments. What do you think's behind these words? How can John say something like this? Or how can James, James say much the same thing, just a little bit differently, at the end of his first chapter, when he writes that religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their time of affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Or as James famously puts it a little earlier, be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
You see, the biblical writers, they talk about how we live. They talk about obedience over and over again. And the reason John is talking about it here is he says, if you want an assurance that you're saved and that when you die you're going to go to heaven, this is one of the things you need to look at. You need to look at how you're living day in and day out. When we walk as Jesus walked, when we're doers of the Word, we show to ourselves and others around us that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts and lives. It shows that God is at work in us. And therefore, though our works do not save us and cannot save us, they give us a gift. They they assure us that our faith in Christ is real. Later in life, after being converted from a slave trader to a preacher and a hymn writer and an author, John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. You and I have an advocate with the Father who has yielded up His life for us. And He calls us to live in this world as He lived. He not only gives us power to save, you see, but He gives us power to change and to be conformed more and more to His likeness. Let's take these words of John. Words that Luther said should be written with golden letters and painted on the heart. Let's take these words of John and embroider them on our own hearts for His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.